2: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com nate uses akg microphones and headphones today nate and ryan are joined by hip-hop ringer steve jewin as they continue their discussion of last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey by bill brewster and frank broughton this week's episode focuses on hip-hop's transition to records with the Sugar Hill Gang, Africa Bambaataa's epic Planet Rock, and how hip-hop morphed from music for dancing and parties into a new form of album and concert music. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll, or should I say, techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Ryan Harkness and our special guest, Steve Jewin, our hip-hop expert, as we're continuing our discussion of the early history of hip-hop as focused on the DJ. So it's a little different than the hip-hop history that we did with hip-hop evolution, where we talked about the recording business and a lot of focus on the MC. This book, uh, and obviously, yes, our source book is Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This book is focused on the DJ, so they're trying to keep that angle in their second chapter on hip-hop. And they open up with this opening rant that basically boils down to hip-hop used to be fun. It used to be something you could dance to. Now it's a concert medium, and we don't like it. It takes itself too seriously. It's too macho, blah, 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 blah. Thoughts on this initial rant, Steve? Steve?
1: You know, I get why there had to be a transition point in the 1980s from dance music to more serious hip hop and I'm not saying that he's wrong but I am saying that it was an evolutionary process as opposed to a rejection to dance because every musical genre goes through that. Rock and roll was fun too and then it started to have messages in the 60s and 70s that had important things to get across because the world was changing, society was changing and hip-hop was no different there were a lot of social issues in the 1980s so it had to move away from just being about dancing and fun but at the same time i think hip-hop has always managed to find a balance between having a message and having a beat you could dance to there's a way to do both
0: very true ryan your thoughts on their angle on hip-hop in this chapter
3: i think it's just probably justification so they can kind of uh Shoehorn everything into this one chapter, and then walk away from it, being like, "We got it, we got it." So, so they're like, "This, this was the time where the," and, and they are right in in the idea that all of the uh, or a, a lot of the DJ based stuff, all all of the really heavy lifting as far as scratch evolution goes, and and, and beat juggling and everything else like that. That th- this is really where where DJing was at at, at the heart of hip hop, and then after that, it does kind of move on. So I, I look at it a bit of a just a bit of a justification for just being able to kind of give us this this bit of it and and rather than have like six more chapters on it, uh, especially these guys being more mixed mag, more dance-focused guys, and just being able to say, okay, we did it. And there you go.
0: Yeah, I, I think that – that make, and it makes sense in the, in the context of their narrative. Like hip-hop is such a big story that it would be two 500-page books if they tried to cover it both. But it's also – One of the key DJ-centered mediums, so they had to cover it, and I think this is a pretty good compromise with the exception of I think they should have talked about the black straight DJ disco DJs more, but we covered that in our special episode last time or two times ago if you're the listener, and so from that initial thing, then the chapter – uh, the structure of this chapter is kind of weird because they 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 go from the initial rant and then they and rants probably overstating it but um then they go into rocking it in the park and talking about how the Bron- the original Bronx hip-hop DJs didn't see a bigger picture. they were having fun playing in rec rooms and local parks and moving up to nightclubs but they weren't thinking about putting out records and and uh, you know they also go on this weird, Sidebar about how the early scene was very druggy, and there was lots of cocaine, and lots of the early songs reference cocaine. A lot of the nicknames Curtis Blow, etc., reference cocaine. Uh, they claim that White Lines, the Grandmaster Flash of the Fur- Furious Five song, was initially a pro-cocaine song before some the language was added to make it a, a important message and warning for the kids and maybe they're right um and they also talk about pcp and how this the body odor smell of smoked pcp was a staple there so yeah they really really made it uh i could practically
3: smell the pcp sweating out of people's pores from the description that they had it was really gross but also kind of like i mean guess you had to be there rooms full of people stinking of P- pcp it sounds pretty wild
0: indeed indeed and pcp is a drug that's gotten a bad rap kids i mean wait well never mind take that back um
3: (laughs) no there's no redeeming pcp that's one of those ones you just like sorry like that's not it's like bath salts and stuff like that there's no there's no like oh a more nuanced discussion to be had these days
1: It It'll would be, be like saying there's an upside
0: to crystal meth. I don't think <laughs> there is. Well, somebody who stayed up all night might argue with you, but it's going to be rebranded as ketamine or special K, and we'll come back to it in a few chapters. But um, then I segue into this into this bit about battles, and and again, this is this is something that they talked about in the reggae chapter and talked about previously, and they're focused on DJ battles. As well as some MC battles, but but they tell the story of of DJ Cool Herc blowing away Africa bambata with his pure volume, and you know Bambaataa's bringing in all the records and the crate digging, and 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 Herc uh, comes in and ominously you know just says Africa bambata turn it off, you know, and then and then Bambaataa keeps trying to play, and Herc comes back louder and says turn it off, you know, and so that's a pretty funny story, and and they also tell the story of the. Classic Cold Crush Brothers versus the Romantic Fantastic Five, which was captured on tape. It was the early 80s in Harlem World. And they get into a little bit of the tra- tape trading and selling culture that was developing. So these guys weren't thinking about putting out records, but they were making tapes of their shows, and those tapes were getting sold. And they talk about how cab services would frequently promote the tapes, and people would come to Charlie Chase's house. And it's very much reminiscent of the stuff that we're going to cover on hip hop evolution on this, sh- on the bigger let it roll series, you know, with like DJ screw in Houston or, or um, you know, the tape trading scene in Memphis. So this, this cassette tape thing was a staple of hip hop from the seventies all the way into the internet era in the early two thousands. And they, they get that in there, but then they make the big segue into hip hop on record, which is kind of the, the theme of this chapter essentially. And, they, they have a little story about Fab Five Freddy, who is an art scene guy or a graffiti artist who made himself an art scene guy to try to promote graffiti art. And he describes the first time he saw Grandmaster Flash of the Furious Five. And he goes up to Melly e. Mel afterwards and he's like, man, you guys should make a record. And Melly e. Mel's like, huh? Who would buy this? And obviously Melly e. Mel was missing the big picture. And Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records Seizes this opportunity that's missed, manufactures a group, the Sugar Hill Gang, and puts out Rappers Delight. As we talked about last time, it's not the first rap record. the The funk band Fatback put out a record called Personality Jock with a with a DJ radio DJ King King Tim the Third rapping over it. But Rappers Delight is just far and away the better record, and and the first rap record that introduces rap. To the world. But again, it's not a DJ record. It's them playing over, rapping over a live disco band that's essentially doing a cover of Sheik's Good Times. So, thoughts on this transitional era, Steve?
1: Well, I think I have to go back a little bit to something you said about Fab Five Freddy first, because I've always viewed him as being a self promoter and I've seen a lot of criticism of him that way as well. So, I dispute the apocryphal nature of the story where he's like yeah I told Grandmaster Flash in the Furious 5 man you should put this on record because that sounds like exactly the sort of thing Fat Fi Freddy would say that I was there I was so important I told him you should do this and he didn't they didn't listen to me I'm the expert like (laughs) <laughs> that that's typical fat five freddy if you ask me i don't sure. know how true we can gauge that story to be but there was definitely a point where nobody saw the commercial aspect of hip hop and putting it on record for the masses like when charlie chase is like people would knock on my window asking for tapes and my neighbors thought i was a drug dealer that's how much demand there was for recorded rap music and nobody was understanding that at a major level until sylvia robinson said there's a market for this i know the music industry i can tap into it
3: well there's definitely uh grandmaster flash said uh that he had no realization that 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 you know records could be a thing that he should make a record of of him doing his dj uh, his DJing, like, like basically take, take it, record a DJ session of him cutting and, uh, juggling breaks and stuff like that. And then put it on a record. He said, that's, that's nonsense. I, and, it, and it took him a while. And you kind of wonder, you know, how many people, uh, had that reluctance to do these things. And, and then it just doesn't happen for them because, because they didn't, they didn't realize it. Grandmaster Flash obviously, uh, ended up, ended up still getting to ride that wave, but how many other people hesitated for half a second or just in the dustbin of history?
0: absolutely and the cold crush brothers are you know probably the most notorious example of that you know grandmaster kaz was uh one of the one of their mcs and is widely credited with having written the original many of the original rhymes that rappers delight was based on and they did make records but they just none of those records ever ever clicked and and they also talk about a period that that hip-hop heads called the drought from the late 70s before the rappers delight came out and after the hip hop scene had peaked in the parks around seventy six. By seventy nine it's kind of tapering off and and disco is having a comeback uh in in the Bronx and other places. And so Rappers Alike kind of saves the day. And Sylvie Robinson and her husband Joe are not the only entrepreneurs getting in there. There's um, Bobby Robinson, who's an old R&B record store owner and record label uh, guy. He puts out some records on Grandmaster Flash, uh, on Enjoy Records that don't go anywhere. And so Flash and the Furious Five then jump to Sugar Hill and put out a number of records, including The Message and White Lines um, that are some of the first topical content-oriented hip-hop records absolute landmarks but the record this book focuses in on is the first time they let grandmaster flash record on the turntables and that's the record we're going to play now adventures of grandmaster flash on the wheels of steel Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, although the Furious Five aren't on that record. It's The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. It's the first record made with records and turntables instead of session musicians, and they call it a revolutionary moment in the history of music. The first time hip hop had been captured on record rather than translated. Music's possibilities had been expanded dramatically. Are they overstating the case, Steve?
1: Not at all. In fact, the reason that my handle on the internet is Steve Flash Jewin is because of this record. This was the first rap record I ever heard. This was the first rap album I ever owned, the Breakdance album that had Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. And as a kid, I listened to this song over and over and over and over and over until I pretty much wore that tape out because it was such a different, unique, fresh musical sound to me having grown up on pop music and disco it was a complete reinvention of music as i knew it
0: well put and ryan what are your thoughts on it as a as a edm dj going back and listening to grandmaster flash mixing it up oh it's
3: just cool that it's 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 a performance you know like uh, it, it's not you can call it a track but it's four tracks performed by grandmaster flash and transformed in the way that hip hop djs do that, that you know more traditional edm djs were more we're more transitionary uh per- performers if you want to put it like that we, we just do the transitions and and some of us get a little bit mad with with laying a couple things over each other but this was a real construction of of several tracks all put together and really manipulated so it showed the, the, the possibilities, and I imagine that the first time everybody heard it, it opened a lot of eyes to what, what could be done. So I can definitely see how, how everybody at the time just had their minds blown by it.
1: And I love the anecdote how they had to re-record it like a dozen times because Grandmaster Fudge was like, I can't get it right. I can't record it all in one session. I got to keep doing this over and over and over. And they finally got one take that he was happy with.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's the first time a, a DJ is having um, you know, the studio's shakes where, where I got to get this right, I got to get this right, and the pressure of recording with the red light on. So yeah, definitely a fascinating moment in history. And there's one thing that I think they kind of leave out in this chapter, and that's that era – I mean, this record comes out and then, you know, hip hop continues to evolve on record. And a couple of years later, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin start making records with Run DMC and LL Cool J and others that are using this style to make records where they just have a drum machine and a DJ, they'll have Jam Master J cutting records. So if they want to sample something, pop, they throw a record on the turntable and cut it up that way. And I think that's kind of a fascinating era in hip hop that's relevant to the book that they kind of, they kind of skip over. Um, and then they talk about uh, some other early entrepreneurs. They talk about Paul Winley and his records. He he he's the guy who put out the first Africa Bambara records. He put out his daughter Tanya Winley's. Uh, she was rapping as Sweet Tea at the time, doing vicious rap. But then they quickly move on to. The next epic hip hop record, and and really, you know, I'd say there's Rapper's Delight, and then a couple of Grandmaster Flash tracks, The Message, White Lines, Grandmaster Flash and the Wheels of Steel, and then you get to Planet Rock, and this is where the second of the three original kings of hip hop makes his mark on record, and that's Africa Bambada with Soul Sonic Force's rapping crew, hooks up with producer Arthur Baker, who had been a disco DJ, but felt he wasn't obsessive enough to make it in the clubs so he segued into a studio producer they take two Kraftwerk songs Trans Europe Express and Numbers they add in some some beats from Super Sperm by Captain Sky the Mexican by Babe Ruth which is just a hip-hop and disco staple and they're the first people to use an 808 the Roland TR-808 drum machine they have a Fairlight synthesizer that does some sampling but that was that was this massive machine that cost like a hundred grand. This thing was made for like Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins for these, you know, millionaire, uh, rock star, you know, guys who have massive, massive million dollar recording budgets. But Arthur Baker had had his hands on one and um, actually had to put out a classified ad to find somebody who could um, program the drum machine to go with this and didn't even <laughs> learn the guy's name. That's a classic story. But they, the thing about, planet rock is it takes craft work and it combines two different craft work songs with this massive 808 B, which is being heard for the very first time in human history. And as they say in the book, it says showed that sampled elements didn't have to be preserved intact. Instead, they could be collided into each other and woven into an intricate new sound tapestry Immediately a massive hit on the the dance floors in New York, creates a whole new genre of music, electro, um, which, you know, it's going to go on to influence the West Coast rappers and and two live crew who bounce from L.A. to Florida and, you know, 808 bass becomes a whole, you know, you can trace a whole second genre of of hip hop uh, coming off of the 808 bass stuff that's going to be you know carried through three six mafia and memphis groups and everything so this is a massive massive historical moment and of course craft work sues there's multiple years of litigation uh, uh, eventually it's worked out in their favor but steve what are your thoughts how do you see planet rock in the history of hip hop
1: I'll go with personal experience to start because the first time I heard Planet Rock as a kid, I wasn't even sure it was a rap song because so much of the focus of the song is on those Kraftwerk samples and those heavy bass beats that it feels more like techno or electronic or industrial music than it does like a rap record. The rap almost seems to be secondary or tertiary to what the record is trying to achieve, but if you love of bass, and I was a speakerhead when I was in high school, there are two definitive songs to test your speakers with. Planet Rock is one, and Jam On It by Nucleus is the other, so if you really want to feel the bass, there's hardly a better song.
3: It's just interesting that they took you know, you you can see that this was kind of a a, a greatest hits for Africa Mambada. He took all the songs that he had really great uh, usage of when he was DJing, and he just took took elements out of each of them and he smushed them together to create a track. And it's not a performance like Grandmaster Flash. This was a, a produced thing but it was all still samples all stitched together like the mexican by babe ruth is one of those tracks where if you listen to it you, you don't really understand how the hell these djs used it and then you hear it in a set or you hear it in planet rock and you're like okay they really changed it up which is i guess why i can understand why maybe the babe ruth people didn't sue but Kraftwerk did
0: yeah i mean the Kraftwerk keyboard line is the fundamental melody of the song and and baker made up a different version that that avoided using those but uh the the people at tommy boy records decided to go out with this version and it does transform into something totally new and like you say it's uh, well like steve says it, it didn't really sound like hip-hop it sounded like a whole new thing and that was africa Bambaataa's ambition was he wanted to make an electronic rap record and he absolutely did it's it's a window into the future it's and bringing craft work in to the mainstream of african-american music is is also incredibly important historically and when we get to the ha- chapter on house music in a couple of weeks you know craft work is going to come roaring right back and that's one of those delightful cultural cross-pollination things that i just love where the widest band on earth Craftwork, maybe the widest band in the history of Earth, becomes (laughs) absolutely a foundation stone for some of the greatest African American music ever made. So I just love that kind of cross pollination and and cultural appropriation. Frankly, so let's hear a little bit of Planet Rock by Africa (laughs) Bambaataa. And that was Africa Bambaataa's "Planet Rock." And was somebody about to object to my cultural appropriation? Well, I just wanted to bring it back.
3: We talked about this in the hip hop roots uh, episode, but I thought just in case you know, listeners are just picking cherry picking this one episode. African Bambaataa was was very kind of interesting in the in the history of hip hop in that he was the person with the deepest record box, and he was bringing all of this really disparate music from all over the place and pulling all together. Cause again, the Mexican by Babe Ruth, that's a real weird one. He made that happen and he was dropping craft work in his sets, even though it was, you know, white guys, he didn't care about if it was the Bee Gees the Rolling Stones or whatever else like that. He was down for playing it all. And uh, for somebody who, who built up their whole image on, on say uh, African-American nationalism or African nationalism, uh, he was very, very musically open and, uh, and, 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 really that kind of set a precedent that allowed hip hop, I think to sample from a much wider body of music than maybe if he hadn't been around to show that that was okay.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the key reasons hip hop conquered the world is from the beginning. they say, we're going to include everything. We've got this pioneering new mix of rapping spoken rhyme with sampling, and we're not just going to sample our music, quote unquote, we're going to sample everybody's music, make this the world's music. And it's, you know, it's just brilliant and historic. Steve, final thoughts on Planet Rock?
1: Yeah, I would say that if you wanted to put the diaspora of music, and if I'm pronouncing that word wrong, I'm sorry, it could all be traced back to Africa at some point. So whether it's craft work or hip-hop or rock and roll, it's all going to be coming from a a central pivot point where that music was brought over to the United States by force and then became part of the culture here and then got exported to the world and then got imported right back.
0: It began in Africa. Yes. Yes, Just like humanity did. Um, and, And then from there they segue into a section on sampling and talk about how sampling was essentially just using studio studio electronics to exaggerate what DJs were already doing with turntables. This is the story of technology catching up with the DJ. And I find that really fascinating. It's not the only time in history that's happened where people are doing something that sort of anticipates a coming technology. And I think, I think that happens because when people saw DJs mixing um, tracks, that gets the heads of engineers and techies turning into how could I make this easier? Or, oh, that's a cool idea. And and I could build that, but maybe not. I mean, because, you know, uh, DJ Marley Marl, one of the great hip hop producers, kind of the architect of the production style of the golden age of hip hop. He gets his hands on an e- EMU emulator and accidentally samples a snare drum bit and then realizes, Oh, I've got an isolated snare drum bit, you know, from my favorite James Brown record. I can sample the bass drum from that same record and make my own beats. And this is absolutely a pivotal moment in hip hop. And you know, I'm glad they they mentioned Marley Marl because he's absolutely critical. And this leads to this whole, Sequence, you know, I talked about this era where Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons are making records using turntables and rappers in the studio, but very quickly people like Marley Marl are figuring out I can use samplers and 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 scratch, but just use the the turntables for the scratching sounds as a, as an independent instrument, and then bring the MCs in, you know, and sample beats as well as snippets. And and I mean, the EMU emulator has a very, very short memory by our standards. I mean, it, it can, you know, this thing would be a kid's toy now and, and it, it could barely, you know, had any memory at all so they had to be very creative in the way they reconstructed songs with these early emulators but that doesn't stop people like public enemies bomb squad or prince paul with de la soul or you know uh, the dust brothers with the beastie boys from creating these incredible collage albums by the late 80s hip-hop has blossomed into this form that's just sampling everything you've got records you know with dozens of samples in a single song and, of course, that leads to lawsuits and um, and, a, and a big change in the sound. We, we won't get into that too much, but, you know, as, as they quote Nelson George here, it's only when they start sampling white artists and white artists get l- wind of it that the lawsuits start. And, you know, the turtles sued De La Soul, although that case wasn't so bad. That was just a case of you sampled my record. I want some money. I think that's fair enough. But when Gilbert O'Sullivan sued Bismarcky. And the judge comes down with this ruling that's like thou shalt not steal and clearly recognizes, acknowledges no artistic validity to what Bismarcky is doing. It really twisted jurisprudence around music to me. And I'm still bitter and angry about that. And I still love sample based music and 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 am angry about the 30 years of masterpieces we've been robbed of because of short sighted uh, legalism and this idea that all the money needs to go to the old guys and, and that the young people who, you know, are remaking this stuff shouldn't, shouldn't participate. So, but that's, that's a little bit of a side turn. And back to our narrative. Um, the second thing that kind of cured the drought was a number of people became aware of hip hop who were downtown people who are Manhattan people, not Harlem people, not Bronx people, and they start bringing hip hop DJs. Bambot is the first one to start playing downtown. But soon, scene makers like Malcolm McLaren, the, the six Sex Pistols manager, and manager Bow wow, wow, are, you know, McLaren famously goes to the Bronx and sees some of this stuff. And, and some of the people he brought in his wake, like video producer, black video producer named Michael Holman, and an English lady named Rusa Blue, uh, go with him. And pretty soon they're promoting hip hop shows at, at clubs like Negro in the East Village. Uh, they take it to Dance Interia. Um, Rooza Blue goes out on her own and starts booking the Roxy, which is a 3000 capacity ice skating rink. And at first people are like, not sure how the black and Latin crowds from Harlem and the Bronx are going to mix with these white punk crowds. And there's some initial culture shock, but everybody's really thrilled that, that the crowds mix well. And um, you know, Fab Five Freddy's in there promoting himself and others brilliantly, as you mentioned, Steve. And, and he's pushing graffiti art. And so he gets guys like Basquiat and Keith Haring in front of Andy Warhol and the other tastemakers of the Manhattan art scene. And pretty soon graffiti art is the next hot flavor of art. And and all of this mixes together. The, beat, um, the B-boys come down and, and the breakdancing becomes an enormous pop culture thing. And so... This is very critical, I think, in expanding the hip hop culture into the world of of revealing this isn't just rapping and, and and sampling, you know, and scratching records. This is also graffiti. This is dance. This is a complete culture. Let's take a word from our sponsors and get your guys' thoughts on the expansion of hip hop. And so, Steve, how do you view this um, period? Because this is the thing that ex- that results in in the movies like Electric, you know, Boogaloo. What's that one called? Electric Two, uh,
1: Electric <laughs> <Yeah>. Boogaloo,
0: <laughs> Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Is that yes? Okay, yeah. That that's the I, stuff where kids like us heard this stuff first.
1: Well, Beat Street, Crush Groove, all of those movies were Wild Style. Yeah, same difference. They were all fundamental in exposing it to a larger audience because it got into movie theaters in parts of America where hip-hop hadn't established a presence yet. So it was that dissemination of the culture to the masses, but I don't think anybody involved in the scene realized that's what they were doing. I think the people like... Fab Five Freddy and Malcolm McLaren were thinking, oh, this is popular right now. I can cash in on this. I can do something with this and make some money. I don't think they had any larger aspirations of spreading the culture.
3: Well, this is where, to me, like, uh, as as a promoter uh, myself back in the day, uh, I I look at it kind of from a a promoter's point of view, and I see Rooza Blue uh, making this decision. To mix these genres together. And uh, back in my city in Ottawa, Canada, we had a, a promoter and he decided he was going to be doing one room was going to be dance music house and everything like that. And the second room was going to be hip hop. And he was the first guy to to mix those two together. And because he was one of the key promoters in the city, kind of linking those two scenes together, it created uh, a much more amalgamated scene. Uh, for those two styles of music, then you would see in, say, other cities where the hip-hop parties were hip-hop parties and the dance parties were dance parties. If you get somebody who who is willing to cross-pollinate a little bit and they do it well, then it, it really creates a whole new scene basically because these are punk kids hanging out with hip hop kids and I think the book even pointed out there was a whole lot of sex going on a whole lot of everything like this was the at a fundamental level these these people were mixing you know and I, I, I really feel like you gotta give some credit to the to the to 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 blue who uh, who really did seem like she was somebody who was doing it for the love of it and she was just so blown away by what she was seeing that she just had to you know mix it and she loved punk and she loved hip hop and she put them both together and it just worked
1: and you can hear that in records like rapture by blondie and debbie harry in particular she was that enthusiastic about it as well she's like i love hip-hop so i'm gonna rap on my record and i'm not saying she's a great rapper or anything but that record has become a hip-hop historical landmark
3: yeah she names Absolutely. drops a lot of uh, key key people in there
1: yeah she very clearly shouts out Fat five Freddy in the very first line of her rap
0: Yep, and Grandmaster Flash later on, and and that's a number one hit record. I mean, you know, Rapper's Delight was a big record, but Rapture was on to the next level. At that time, Blondie had... Segued from punk to disco and broke through with Heart of Glass. And then, you know, they were doing the American Gigolo soundtrack and they were just mammoth. It's impossible to understate how big Debbie Harry was in 1981 when they dropped Rapture. I mean, nobody in pop culture today is anywhere near as big as Debbie Harry was at that time. And so, yeah, it was absolutely, you know, um, epic. It, It wasn't necessarily the best rap record, but it was historically immense immensely important and i think that kind of undersold rapture in this book as well and then from there they segue into another discussion of disco and and hip-hop and and this is clearly something that the the authors are sensitive about i mean frequently the story of hip-hop has been told like dj hark didn't like disco and so he took it back to the funk records of a few years earlier and you know hip-hop is this harder more macho style and and, and there's a tinge of of homophobia in it, and and these guys are like, yeah, you can say that, but, you know, disco DJs like DJ Hollywood obviously massively influenced the MCs of, you know, the future hip-hop MCs, and then you had guys like Walter Gibbons, the Remix King, who... Is doing stuff on on the in the disco clubs very similar to to the stuff you know he's doing quick mixes and, and cutting back and forth and doing a lot of, of crazy mix, mixing and matching of multiple records and even Francis Grasso the grandfather of disco DJs was was uh, featuring drum breaks early on in the late 60s you know before Cool Herc not in the same way but it, you know it was not totally alien and 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 they say that you know rather than being a rejection of disco hip hop TJ's reformulated disco and, and they point out things like the Mexican that that record was first broken, uh, at the loft by David Mancuso. So cross pollination, um, I view the two hip hop and, and EDM as just two, two branches of the same tree trunk that they are inextricably linked at the beginning and, and kind of part ways. And then they go into, you know, the end of the old school. And we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, with the emergence of samplers, and records, MCs become dominant and they don't need DJs as much. And and you've got producers, you know, if you're an MC, all you really need is a producer at this point, you know, maybe for performing live, you need a DJ, but, and then so many of those hip hop DJs morphed into producers, people like Marley Mall, uh, Eric B, Prince Paul, later on, Dr. Dre, Pete Rock, RZA, et cetera, et cetera. So,
1: primo <laughs>
0: yes and, and they you know so so there's this segue and as as we continue through this series there will continue to be a tension between club djs and producers and frequently they're the same people like somebody like frankie knuckles the father of house he's definitely a club dj but he's also a record producer and these roles are distinct even if sometimes they're performed by the same people and from there, they segue into turntablism. And this is another thing that absolutely indisputably comes out of hip hop, that this is where the role of hip of the DJ has evolved in the hip hop. And it's kind of quiet for a while, but people like um, the Disco Mix Club in the UK kind of keep this alive. They have these competitive DJ contests and people are developing new techniques. And um, it gives DJs of the future um a platform to show off their innovations and you know then they segue into grand wizard theodore you know the inventor of scratching we talked about him a little bit last time he was an understudy of grandmaster flash do we feel like Grandmaster, the grand wizard theodore has gotten enough credit steve or is he kind of overlooked in the grand scheme of things
1: I would say he's definitely underrated, undercredited I would say the same thing about Grandmaster or DST I, I think there's been this tendency over the years for hip hop to focus strictly on Grandmaster Flash which while he was indeed the one who invented a lot of techniques that were used, he wasn't necessarily a turntablist in the way that Grand Wizard Theodore was where he was doing needle drops where he would juggle the record and make new sounds with it grandmaster flash was was looking for a way to quickly move from one record to the other with his turntables but he wasn't necessarily a turntablist artist in that respect and even the the pioneering things that he did on adventures of grandmaster flash on the wheels of steel paled in comparison to what grand wizard theodore was doing
3: as yes, they say, there are levels to this thing. And uh, Grandmaster Flash had a lot of talent and his uh, break mixing and his break mix theory is really important. Grand Wizard Theodore broke all the rules and did a number of crazy things and and really uh, perfected a lot of the stuff that, that Grandmaster Flash only really touched on.
1: And I think Grand Wizard Theodore was also more of a showman, whereas Flash was doing it for the musical side of it. Theodore was doing it like this is a performance. You're going to watch me and you're going to be amazed by what I do.
0: And you mentioned DST, and that's Derek Sherwood, who is another DJ, who was one of the first DJs to get invited to travel. And he gets invited to perform in Paris. And there he's seen by jazz great Herbie Hancock, who, um, you know, one of the fathers of Jazz Fusion, played with Miles Davis for many years. And Hancock is one of a number of jazz figures at this point in time who's looking to stay current and brilliantly does it. He works with DST to put together this record, and this is Herbie Hancock's Rocket. That was herbie hancock's rocket featuring uh, dst on the turntables and this is another record that is absolutely immense in history this is it was sold as a jazz guy doing new music and to me it's kind of analogous to the way like zz top or the police or rush were adapting the newest technology and kind of new waving their sound and so it was it was something that the record industry knew how to deal with. Oh, here's an old guy who's updated his sound with the new technology and he's got this crazy new thing. Let's play it. And also MTV had been coming under pressure from Rick James and then double ACP and other people, because initially they were just a straight up racist network. They would, we only play rock, which means white guys, which is bullshit. Um, and, and, and they, uh, you know, CBS Records essentially told them, look, if you don't play Michael Jackson, you're not getting any of our stuff. And and that arm twisting finally forced them. And then, of course, once they play, uh, you know, Billie Jean and beat it on MTV, well, lo and behold, the kids love it. And MTV is bigger than ever. And so Herbie Hancock and Rocket came along right at that time and was perfect for them because the video doesn't have too many black people in it. And and yet it's obviously uh Hip and innovative. And so, you know, another record that kind of had a bigger cultural impact and is more important to the history of hip hop than you would think, considering it's a record made by Herbie Hancock. How do you see it, Steve?
1: I agree with everything you just said about how landmark the record was. And for me at a young age, it again gave a new definition to hip hop because Africa Bambaataa and the soul sonic force was rap. That didn't sound like rap as I knew it. And rocket was the same thing. It's like, where's the MC? This is just music and a DJ. And it was another example of hip hop is not just what you categorize it as in your head or we weren't even calling it hip-hop really at that age where I was, and I was calling it rap music. I'm like, this is rap music, but there's nobody rapping. So I think that paved the way for future instrumental records and turntablists who could say, look, here's our music. We're making it with a turntable. We're sampling, we're scratching, we're using these breaks. We don't have to have an MC for it to be a rap record.
0: Absolutely. And also the thing, the imprimatur of Herbie Hancock, who's somebody that... Everybody acknowledges as an instrumental virtuoso and genius musician. If Herbie Hancock's playing with a DJ and treating him as an equal musician, I know like my older brother suddenly took scratching seriously. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I, he wasn't one of the people that was saying that ain't nothing. That's just people playing records and talking. Anybody can do that, which is what you know we heard about hip hop in the Texas Panhandle incessantly. But my older brother, who's into jazz fusion and into guitar virtuosos and stuff, he's like, "Kid, check this out!" You know, he immediately saw it as virtuoso musicianship because Herbie Hancock had given it that steal of approval. And DSC. DST says, you know, that he was not quite accepted by the other musicians in the band until, you know, they would have questions about the song for Herbie and Herbie was finally like, don't ask me, ask him. He wrote the song. And, and when it was Quincy Jones, the great jazz arranger, producer and producer of Michael Jackson's Thriller at the time, you know, the hottest, biggest uh, producer in music met DST and came up and hugged him and, you know, wanted to see him play. And so he, Said, you know, he really felt accepted and acknowledged at that time. So I don't think you can undersell the importance of Rocket one bit. And it lays the groundwork for the acceptance of turntablism.
1: And that, I also, oh, oh I'm sorry. I was no, go, say- ahead. go ahead. Go there's also a blowback from jazz artists at some point too because even brothers like Wynton Marcellus and Branford Marcellus you know Brantford's all about I want to collaborate with hip-hop artists and Wynton's like that's not even music that's just noise so the jazz community was not immediately open and receptive to hip-hop just because of Herbie Hancock.
0: Yeah yeah that's very true and and that was in a period of time when Wynton Marsalis in particular is leading this sort of reactionary retrenchment of hip hop. And he's not just reject of jazz. He's not just rejecting hip hop. He's rejecting jazz fusion. He's rejecting free jazz. He's rejecting, you know, art jazz like Cecil Taylor. So, and he's taken it to the Lincoln Center and, and with this very narrow definition of what jazz was. So it was kind of a culturally reactionary period in jazz history. And it's I think to Herbie Hancock's credit that he ignored that stuff and pressed ahead. Of course, it was very lucrative for him too. <laughs> <laughs> so. Man, it was
3: very <laughs> lucrative for <laughs> the guys doing the same old thing to, to try and keep same old as the official uh, you know, endorsed version of what jazz is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Jazz at the Lincoln Center is not free. Those guys are you
1: know their tuxedos are being paid for. Yeah, somebody's getting a dollar somewhere.
0: Yeah, and, and they also talk about uh, Malcolm McLaren who brings some hip hop to record uh, with his record Buffalo gals. Um and he he brings in the world's famous Supreme team as DJs and they and they uh, cut up I can't, what's this this the album's called Duck Calls I think or Duck something. I, M- McLaren is when, you know, one of these great put-on artists of musical history, there's still controversy to this day as to whether, you know, he claims he manufactured the Sex Pistols just like the Archies were manufactured and that they were just dupes of his brilliant uh, puppeteering. And then, you know, Bow Wow Wow was his follow-up in the early 80s, and then he was really successful with Buffalo Gals, and it does work. I, I resisted at the time just because I was on the Sex Pistols side of that argument and and didn't and didn't trust her like and. But going back and listening to Buffalo Gals, it's it's right in there with Rocket, and, and Planet Rock to me is, is one of these pivotal, not quite a hip-hop record, but bringing elements of hip-hop out into the larger world. And, you know, Bambata is going to collaborate with John Lydon, the f- former Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, on, on World Destruction here shortly as well. So there's this continued cross-pollination between punk and hip-hop, and even the Cold Crush Brothers try to do a punk rap, which doesn't quite work <laughs> one of their many unsuccessful <laughs> attempts to translate their magic to record and from there they finished up the chapter with this discussion of of transforming and beat juggling they acknowledged C J Jazzy Jeff for debuting transforming on uh, the, the magnificent Jazzy Jeff which was something he was doing with uh, Will Smith the Fresh Prince one of their breakthrough records and Ryan, can you explain what transforming is
3: Uh, Well, basically, this is where you get into crab Scratching, which is basically you kind of have your hands down like a like you'd imagine, like crab legs. You got two fingers together and then your thumb, and you're basically throwing the, the crossfader back and forth between your fingers and your thumb really rapidly, as as you're moving the, the the turntable, the the record back and forth. So you can just do one long pull back or pull forward and your crab scratching, you'll be, you'll be flicking that mixer back really, really fast to cut it up. And, and, and make basically, uh, they, they set it straight up. It's, it sounds like a kind of like a, one of the transformers kind of transforming. So that's why it's called the transformer.
0: And let's hear an example of that. Um, the book says that you can hear it in the magnificent Jazzy Jeff, but we couldn't really find an example that's easy enough for the slow people in the audience like myself to hear. <laughs> so here's scratchcool.com doing a demo of the transformer scratch, the
3: transformer scratch, Now the Transformer Scratch is kind of what I would call one of the secondary scratches which is kind of like second after Baby or maybe the second wave of scratches where DJ has really started to work with the mixer and the record to make new innovative sounds. The Transformer Scratch got its name because it kind of sounds like the sound of a Transformer changing shape in the cartoon. It gets this sound by playing the record forwards and backwards at different speeds while turning it on and off with the Crossfader. Watch.
0: And that was ScratchSchool.com making it obvious, here's the Transformer Scratch and, and what it can do and so um, and one interesting thing about Jazzy Jeff is he's from Philly and Philly is I think very under celebrated in the history of hip hop, it's the home of Schoolie D as well as Will Smith and, and many others and obviously it was the home of Gamble and Huff and and so much great disco was recorded there so shout out to Philly playing a role and and. That they talk about transforming in the new techniques that that a younger generation of hip hop DJs was bringing to bear, and then they move on to a later group who pioneered something called beat juggling, It's pioneered by the cut technician Steve D. And ultimately, this cum- culminates into turntablism essentially becoming a genre. You get people like Hubert, the Invisible Scratch Pickles, the X-Men, later the Executioners, the Scratch Perverts, making a whole genre out of multiple guys playing turntables as if they were a band. How do you see that in relation to the mainstream of hip-hop, Steve? Is turntablism just a weird side branch, or is it part of the core of hip-hop?
1: Well, uh- That is almost a loaded question because it is the core of hip-hop. You can't have hip-hop without DJs and what would later be turntablism. But if you mean as a commercial entity, I think turntablism records have always been kind of niche. There have been cult labels over the years that have specifically catered to that niche and to people who love turntablism music. But you always get like revivalist hip-hop groups like Jurassic Five that are like, yeah, we're bringing back the DJ, we're bringing back turntablism, and that's because of the fact that it is kind of sold to enthusiasts of turntablism, and not necessarily to people who want the posturing of an MC on hip-hop records, because as you pointed out, once it became a genre where sampling and production took over for the DJ, an MC didn't need a DJ anymore, so a lot of records in the 80s and 90s moved away from turntablism and forced it to become a genre all its own
0: yeah absolutely and also this book was originally written in the late 90s when turntablism was kind of having a moment and you know they also talk about DJ Shadow and, and his commitment to Again, my daughter and the puppy are having a big time in the background so <laughs> excuse us but uh, <laughs> DJ Shadow is, is a guy you know making whole records um
4: Uh, (laughs) very wholesome
0: yeah let them do a whole show um but yeah so you know you got dj shadow with his introducing album a classic album but it's you know all instrumental samples and scratching and and the the king of the crate diggers and and you know they describe dj shadow out there hunting for obscure records in the basements of old warehouses and stuff and even going to vietnam and braving snakes in the basement to to hunt for records and you know, he's got this fear of, of experiencing what happened to Northern Soul, where the DJs just ran out of great soul records from the 60s and even mediocre soul records from the 60s. And he's mining a different era of, of funk, 70s funk, essentially, and, you know, worried that He's gonna, um, you know, run out of tunes. Ryan, as a dance DJ, how do you see turntablism? Is it revel- relevant to your craft at all?
3: Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a uh, there's a split between scratching. Like, uh, the, the, there's a certain amount of scratching you can do over a record to accompany it that can really fire up the dance floor. And then turntablism starts to go into a thing where it's it, it's its own kind of show and it, it's it's less i'd say like danceable and it's more of like kind of a stand and watch thing so it ends up uh separating itself when there's a turntable performance kind of everybody would kind of just gather around and, and and watch and maybe you got a couple break dancers or something like like doing something but you see stuff like invisible scratch pickles and the executioners and and their stuff is is just so technical that you're trying to just kind of soak up What's what's going on. So I think that that takes it to a more uh, intellectual realm, if if that if that's the right word, as opposed to like something that's making your body move. And I think that's kind of where where the separation comes in, uh, as far as you know, a DJ's purpose. Uh, being to to move the dance floor uh, versus this being something that gets like uh, you know it's very much about uh, your skills and your manipulations and and you're not you're not really catering anymore to to the dance floor so that that's just kind of what I see on it now I'm I'm still blown away by everything that turntablists can do I can't even crab um, my my hands like shake too much to be able to ever get any scratch <laughs> out out of me so. Uh, it's all that PCP, but, right? but huge, yeah, all that I got a huge <laughs> respect for those people at the top of the DJing pyramid, where it's it's like a weird, different, different thing. But uh, you know, uh, as far as technical skill go, it doesn't go higher than that.
0: Yeah, I would compare it very much to the bebop era in jazz when Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie take jazz away from the dance floor. And these were both veterans of swing bands who had grown up, you know, and learned their craft, playing. Uh, and making people dance, and they decided, you know, people need to sit down and listen because we are that good, and and that's where turntablism is to me, and and that and that kind of connects to the way the writers kind of dismiss hip hop, that they they acknowledge, you know, it becomes the dominant form of pop in 1999, starts outselling country, it uh, goes international, you know, we got major MCs and DJs coming out of France, Nigeria, New Zealand, uh, even got Jay Z endorsing Obama in 2008 as a big part of the presidential. You know, race. So they they take their hats off to hip hop, but they essentially say hip hop turned into rock and roll. It's a concert medium uh, full of posturing, self important guys um, with messages and a focus on the lyrics. And that's not what we're doing in this book. This book is focused on dance and the party. And so. Uh, see a hip hop, it's been great, but you know, at this point, we part ways. So, I think that's a fair enough assessment. So, Steve, thanks so much for joining us and helping us navigate uh, the hip hop waters. And I hope to have you back on the show sometime in the future.
1: It was a pleasure. I'd love to do it again anytime.
0: All right. And Ryan, you and I will be back and we'll be talking about paradise, garage, and the whole genre of garage. Did back I say that to right? disco, yeah. Yep. Garage. So, uh, next week, we'll be back to disco. So, thanks, everybody.
2: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Podcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be focusing on Larry LeVon, The Paradise Garage, and the post-disco genre named after the club. Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts, at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.